Well, as we begin reading in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles the person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This week, Lisa was doing some painting down in the basement of the church, painting a Sunday school room, and and there's a little bit of water damage on the ceiling that had happened a while back, and and I'd fixed that water damage, or at least so I thought. Uh, But something in the process, I don't know if it was the paint or the patch that I used, they didn't stay adhered. Once the wetness of the paint where she was painting got into that, it made the patch let loose from that spot. and, And she came over to the house a little bit later I was doing some studying and stuff on Wednesday and and she came in and she was a little bit frustrated with it and she said you know that old that patch let loose it's going to have to be fixed up she said now all the time that I spent over there trying to get that Sunday school room done and fixed up she said it was all for nothing it was all waste that is frustrating when you put some time into something and you you invest energy and then to have it come to nothing to to find that it was just a a waste of time that it didn't uh, do what you wanted it to accomplish well that's what we see when we look at this Point in Jesus' ministry here, he's looking at the scribes and the Pharisees. And these are people that have devoted a great amount of time to religion. And Jesus is pointing out that all the effort that they've put in has all come to nothing. It's been vain. In fact, that's the word he uses. He quotes from Isaiah and he says, in vain. What does that mean? It means empty, without cause, without result. In vain. It was all for nothing. It was all empty. And so the focus that he's trying to lead his disciples, we're going to kind of turn it toward a little bit more of a positive note as we look through this negative consequence, is that he's trying to point out to his disciples that you need to experience true worship. Not every worship that is out there in this world is true. There's a lot of faiths out there in this world that are not trusting in Christ. And Jesus made it very clear in his teaching. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Which means that there's a lot of people out there that are investing their life, investing their worship into different ways and to different gods that is in vain. It is it is empty. It comes to nothing. Jesus in his teaching also made it very clear back earlier in Matthew when he said, there's a broad way that leads to destruction. Most people are on that. And there's a narrow way. And few there are that find that path. Of course, He is that path. Which means a lot of people in this world, as they are going through acts of worship, as they are following religion, are 
coming up empty in their results. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. But Jesus is not leading his disciples in that direction. He's leading his disciples toward true worship. Now, how do we how do we make sure that we aren't in that group? How do we make sure that, that we're following the right path, that we're on that narrow path and not the wide one? How do we... How do we know? What can we learn from this situation that will help us from falling, keep us from falling into the pitfalls that the Pharisees and the scribes fell into? I think of the Apostle Paul. He said the same thing about his Jewish brothers, a lot of these same people. He said, you know what? They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. So in other words, they're very religious people, and, and our world kind of tries to group us into, they just call us people of faith. So it really doesn't matter what faith you are, you have this common denominator of faith, then you're all kind of the same. Well, that couldn't be farther from the truth, because the Bible makes it very clear that it's not just people of faith, and it doesn't matter what God or how you practice it. God, as he revealed himself to his people, was very specific in exactly how they were to worship him and who it is, who he is, that they are worshiping. And anything done outside of that was called idolatry. It was not accepted. It was sinful. And so we have the right worship, and then we have vain worship. And the Pharisees, had, it was the right God, but going about it the wrong way. And that's what Jesus points out to them. Well, let's take a look at what we can learn. Jesus points out two failures in their life which kept them from achieving true worship. The first failure that they committed was that their heart was in the wrong place. Jesus says, in vain do you worship me. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There was an inconsistency. Their, their lips would speak the right words, but their heart just wasn't in it. It was empty. It was, it was hollow. They had rules. They had traditions. They had religion, but they didn't have a relationship with God. They didn't love God. We see it in their request. They, they come before Jesus and they say, why do your disciples violate the traditions of the elders? They're, they're eating without washing their hands. Now, eating without washing the hands actually had nothing to do with cleaning your hands. It was a ceremony of being pure and holy and clean before God. They were very specific in how they did it. If you read uh, Alfred Edersheim's uh, book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he says that the way that they had to wash their hands was that you had to hold your hands with your fingers pointed up and you had to pour the water down so that the water would come over your hand and go all the way down to the wrist and drip off at the wrist. If you dropped your hands too early and some of that water ran back onto your hand, well, that's polluted water, so now you just defiled your hands again, so they're dirty again, so you've got to start over. Then after... You washed them that way, then you flipped them over this way, and you poured water on there again with the fingers pointed down, and you rinsed your hands off again. And then finally, you took the fist of one hand, and you used it to rub the other hand, and then your hands were clean. And they would go through this ceremony before every meal, and even between courses of meals. That was such a big deal to them. You know, if you look back in rabbinical teaching, one rabbi, he said, if you live within the land of Israel, and you wash your hands before every meal, you can be assured of eternal life. Those two things. That's how high on the charts this was for them. One rabbi taught that you are better to walk four miles to where you can wash your hands before eating than to eat without washing your hands. One rabbi that was imprisoned at one time was given a small ration of water to be able to drink, and he said to have used it to wash his hands before he ate the food that he was given. He said he would rather die than to eat with unwashing hands. That's the kind of emphasis they ended up putting on this tradition. The Pharisees would take in their traditions in trying to protect the laws of God. Now, if you look in the laws of God, there were such things as ceremonial washings and there were such things as polluted animals as far as food that you weren't supposed to eat. And those were always things that were symbolic of living a life that was devoted to God, pure to God, cleansed. But it wasn't the issue itself. That was always supposed to reflect 
a heart that was in love with God, that was pure before God. But what they did was they made everything a ritual. They made their religion a ritual before God. So you accomplish this ritual, you wash your hands, it doesn't matter what's in your heart, you wash your hands before you eat, you're good. So they lost the fervor for God, they lost the love for God, but they had all these little commandments that weren't even in the Bible. Well, as we look through the Old Testament and the New, we find that the heart is crucial. When we, when we think back to King David, what do we think of? We think of the man after God's own heart. He definitely had his blunders. He definitely sinned big time on a couple different occasions. But if you look at the pattern of his life as a whole, and he was a man after God's own heart. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and verse 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance. This is uh, talking about David's older brother Eliab. Or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, with Moses, it says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require? Require of you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So even when the law of God was given through Moses, and that's when most, where most people get hung up, Moses gave us the laws of God, and people tried to take those laws and make that, okay, this is how I'm right with God, through this law. Now, obedience is very important, yes, but obedience has to be done out of a heart of love for God. And Actually, the law was given to us to guide us in the right direction, but also to show us that we fail and that we need a redeemer, we need a deliverer, we need a savior. And when he gave them the law, he said, you know what's required of us? That we love God, that we have a heart for God, that we obey him from the heart. That was a crucial issue. Israel always had a struggle with that. They always drifted toward rituals. They also drifted toward, well, if I do these things, then I'm right with God. If I go through these rituals, if we have our children, the male children circumcised, if we keep these sacrifices, we keep these feasts, these holy days. And when you looked within the nation of Israel, you would see that they would drift. In their hearts, they'd be drifting from God because they'd be offering sacrifices to God and they'd also have idols in their house. Or they'd offer sacrifices to God, but they would stop pleading the cause of the widows and the orphans. They'd be taking advantage of other people in their society, shedding innocent blood even. And God would come to them at times like that and say, what are you doing? All their religion was still there. They looked like a very religious people, but they were so far from being right with God. Their heart was just not there. I think of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. It says, When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? It's like we come in and gather to come to church here today, and God coming, showing up and saying, Who, who asked you to come here? And what would our answer be? Well, you did. Tells us in the Bible not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is. You told us. Well, that's what Israel could have said. God says, hey, wait a minute. Who told you to come and trample my courts? Talk about it as temple, the courtyards. Well, they could have easily said to God, well, wait a minute. You you told us. We can show you the verse in the Bible where we're supposed to do this. Well, keep reading. It says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations I cannot endure. Iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and... And your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. All these things that God is saying. Why are you doing this? Why are you burning incense? Why are you bringing offerings? Why are you praying? Why are you doing all this? He had commanded them to do all of it. But obviously, this is not what he asked for. What did he ask for? He asked for people that loved him and did these things out of love and dedication and 
faith. But they were far from that. Well, he goes on to tell them, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God calls them to change. He says, you know what? You're not doing what I commanded you to do. Yes, you're doing the offerings. Yes, you are coming in and sacrificing animals. Yes, you're burning incense and showing up at my temple. But this is not what I wanted. I wanted a people that out of love for me and for one another would come and offer these things as a gesture of love while being faithful to me and not worshiping other gods in your home. People that wouldn't be taking advantage of widows and orphans within their society. He says, that's what I asked for. So you see the heart, even in the Old Testament, when they're supposed to be keeping the law and offering sacrifices, it was supposed to be done from the heart. Remember the, the Shema for Israel? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all of your strength. And then teach your children to do the same. That's what God was looking for. That these religious things that they went through would be just a, an outpouring of a reflection of a full heart and love with God. That's what he wants. You know, in Amos, that prophet came with a similar message for the people of Israel at that time. It says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Can you imagine that? If God were to show up in our church and say, would you just be quiet? Could you just go home? He will want us to stop if in in our lives, out there, if we're not caring for other people, if we're not compassionate toward other people, if we come in here and try to sing like angels and go out there and try to live like the devil, God's not honored in that. God says, let justice flow. Let righteousness. He he wants to see our our religion, the the religious type things that we do need to be an overflow of a heart of gratitude and love for God. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. And that's exactly what the Pharisees had. God says they're honoring me with their lips. They're coming into the temple and they're quoting psalms. They're coming into the temple. They're singing songs of praise. They're honoring me with their lips. But their heart is so far away. It's so far from me. God doesn't want our our songs. God doesn't want our sermons. God doesn't want our prayers just for those sakes themselves. What He wants is all of those things as an expression of a heart that is just in love with God. That's what He wants. He wants not our religion. He wants us to be committed to Him. But not not only did they have their heart in the wrong place, but their authority was from the wrong place. These people were coming in and complaining because they were not going through their ritual hand washing and they were caught up in their traditions of the elders and in doing that, they contradicted the Word of God. And Jesus points that out to them. He says, you by your traditions have made void the commandments. And then he gives them an example. And the example is this. He said, in the commandments, which you can go right to the Ten Commandments for this one, it tells you to honor your father and your mother. But in your tradition... You've made that void. This is what their tradition was. Their tradition was that if you had proclaimed that everything that you owned or parts of your possessions were a gift. And by a gift, it means a gift to God. If, if they were, you were to say, all that I have, I have given to God. They actually didn't require that you actually went and gave it at the temple. You just had to declare that everything you owned 
was a gift to God. You still had management of it. But you would say to your parents, as they get older and need help taking care of themselves, need help being provided for, you'd say to your parents, I would be love to help you out, but you know what? Everything that I have, I gave it to God. And so now I can't, I just can't, I can't give it to you. I can't help you with it. Do you see what they did? Do you see the hypocrisy here? Honoring our parents, honoring our father and mother should include as they get older and if they need help, to help them. Especially in that society, that society was a little bit different than ours. They didn't have the retirement programs and things like that that we have today. And so parents needed help a lot. But these guys found a way to get out of letting go of their money, even for their own mom and dad. Now that's horrible. But to take it a step further, they found a way to hang on to their money, keep it away from giving to mom and dad, and find a way to look super godly at the same time. Because now they can go to their parents and say, boy, I guess the reward of having such a great son is going to have to be enough for you. Because I am so godly that I did dedicated everything that I have to God so I can't even help you out anymore. And so the parents are going to have to live on pride in such a well-raised child. They they found a way to completely violate God's law, turn their back on their own parents, and look really good in the process and pat one another on the back for their dedication to God. And God says, that is not dedication to me. That is a violation of my commandments. You, through your tradition, wherever you came up with this idea of dedicating it to God, giving it as a gift to God, have actually violated my commandments. You see, they were looking in their authority. They were looking to their tradition. Down through the years, the rabbis had taught so much about what the Old Testament meant, about what the Scriptures meant, that their tradition kind of buried the Scriptures in the process. Because the way they saw it was the rabbis were the only ones with the authority to go interpret the Word of God. So as the rabbis interpret the Word of God, then they have to tell us what it means. So rather than just reading the Bible for myself, I need to go to a rabbi to have him tell me what it meant to my life. It's the same kind of thing. We ended up seeing that come up through the Dark Ages with the Catholic Church. They ended up getting to the point where the Catholic Church piled a lot of tradition on on top of the teaching of the apostles that we have in the New Testament. And it didn't happen right away. It took gradually long periods of time. But by the time you get up to like 1500s, they had so much tradition that the gospel was buried in that you could hardly find it. And that's why you had people from within the Catholic Church like Luther and and then and you had Calvin and Zwingli and some of these other reformers that, that started studying the New Testament and said, you know what, we've... We've piled on our traditions and we've drifted so far away from the gospel that we need to get back to that. And so they tried to not leave the Catholic Church. They tried to reform the church and say, you know what, we need to, we need to get back to the simplicity of the gospel and back to the Word of God rather than all of our traditions. But by that time, the Catholic Church now stood on the authority of kind of a three-legged stool. In our Baptist heritage, we look back, what is our authority? The first governing principle of being a Baptist is the Word of God is our authority for all of faith and practice. It's our only authority. Well, the Catholic Church has three authorities that they look to. The Catholic Church has the authority of the Word of God. It has the authority of church tradition and the authority of the current church magisterium. In other words, the leadership of the church. So it has those three things are all equal authority. But in their teaching... The Catholic Church is the only one that has the right to interpret the Word of God. And then they own the traditions and they own the magisterium. So it really boils down to the church being the authority. That's the way the Jewish people back then looked at it. That the rabbis were the only ones with the authority to interpret the Bible. So we got to go to them. Well, they ended up piling so much tradition on it 
that it buried what they were trying to accomplish to begin with. They did not go for their source to the Word of God. They went for their source of their authority was the traditions of the rabbis. And that's exactly what he's calling them away from. Jesus said, you've erred in two ways. One, your lips are honoring me, but your heart isn't. Your heart isn't in it. Secondly, in vain you are worshiping me because you've teaching for doctrines. In other words, the things that we believe. You're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What's he referring to? Their church traditions. In emphasizing these traditions, you've, you've drowned out the word of God by your traditions and you're teaching the commandments of men instead of the commandments of God. And so your worship is vain. You know what? The Bible makes it very clear that we need to have as our authority the Word of God. Otherwise, we end up drifting. The best of intentions will still lead us away from God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. So as we strive to to present ourselves to God, to be acceptable before God in the way that we live, not in our salvation, that's only through faith in Jesus Christ, but as we try to be acceptable before God in, our, in the way that we live, how do we do it? It's through the Word of God, rightly handling the Word of truth. Second Timothy, just a chapter later, verse, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, he says, we have everything that we need to be completely equipped for every good work that God wants us to do. Where do we find is it? Where is it that God gave us what we need? It's in the Scripture. The Scripture that is God-breathed, it's, God, it's inspired. That's the very end of chapter 3. If you go right into chapter 4, he then tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when the people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into the myths. So after telling Timothy that God has given us everything that we need to equip us for all that he wants us to do in the scriptures, he then tells Timothy, so you preach those scriptures, I charge you before God. You preach those scriptures and there's going to come people are going to gather because of their wanting to hear what they want to hear. They're going to gather to themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. He says, you stick to the word of God. That is your authority. You know, Peter, Peter made a similar statement. In fact, I really love this passage in, in 2 Peter in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, there is so much there. Can we just walk through that step by step, just a little slower? It starts out, it says that His divine power, God's power, that's, that's the power source that we get to tap into here says, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So it's saying that everything that we need for life and godliness in this life that we're living, we have that all. The power source for it is God. We get to plug right into God. We get to plug right into that power source. He'll give us everything that we need. All right, now, with that in mind, let's move on. 
It says through. In other words, how do we plug in? Where do we find? Where do we tap into that power source at? It says through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So we have everything that we need to live this life of for life and godliness in the power of God. We tap into that through the knowledge of God. Now, where do we get the knowledge of God? By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So you see what it's saying? It's saying, look, we have everything that we need in God, in His power. Where do we find it? In the knowledge of Him. Where do we find that? In His precious promises, which is the Word of God. That's how we access it. That's how we tap into that power. Now, I love what it says after that. It says, so that through them... What is them? His great and precious promises, the Word of God, so that through them we may become, or you may become, partakers of the divine nature. We have unlimited power to be able to accomplish the things that God wants us to accomplish, to live the godly life that God wants us to live at. It is found in the limitless power of God. We tap into it through knowledge of Him. We find that in the promises of Him. So through that whole process, we get to partake in the divine nature. I love that passage. That is just so cool. You have ultimate power, and it's probably sitting on multiple shelves around your house. Isn't that amazing? That is awesome. Well, the Bible also does speak favorably about tradition. But it usually uses it as a synonym for the Word of God, most often. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. And so the apostle here is saying, look, hold, hold firm to the traditions that you were taught by us. What is he talking about? He's talking about the word of God. Who is the us? The apostles. As we're teaching you, these traditions, the word tradition in the Greek language just means something that you hand down or you hand over. It sometimes even means receive, that I receive from somebody else and I pass on to somebody else. And so it's just teaching that has been handed over. And so he uses the word tradition here to talk about the Word of God through the words that we gave you while we were with you and the words, our letters. Our letters are what? Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, you know, First and Second Timothy. Those are the letters. It's our New Testament. But it even becomes more clear if we just look back a couple verses. If we go back to Second Thessalonians, same chapter 2, verse 13, It says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And then he goes on to to encourage them to hold firm to those traditions that they taught them. What he's saying is we've delivered the word of God to you, and you recognize it as the word of God, and you've believed it, you've trusted, you've followed it. So that's actually, in talking about speaking well of traditions, he's actually using that to refer to the Word of God. You know, I always think of, uh, well, in some translations, most translations, I think it calls them the Bereans in the ESV that we're using. It calls them Jewish people. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Do you realize what that's saying? is saying that when the Apostle Paul was there teaching them, they were searching the Scriptures to make sure that Paul was right. (laughs) 
he, he's delivering them the Word of God. God is inspiring him to give them God's words, and they're second-checking him. <laughs> they're looking throughout Scripture. Is he right? Is, this what he, is what he's saying right? Well, I will guarantee you one thing. If they needed to do that with the Apostle Paul, you sure better be doing it with me. I am not your authority. The things that I say from here are not your authority unless they line up completely with the Word of God. The Word of God is our authority. If we start making other traditions, and as good as they may seem, we start making other traditions and other rules and start adding to the Word of God to try to make a more pure religion, you know what? We're going to end up right where the Pharisees were, where our traditions and our rules will end up burying the Word of God, which actually is our authority. Jesus had to straighten those people out. He says, look, in your traditions, you wash your hands a certain way and you think you're clean before God. He says, I don't want to talk about what goes in your mouth. I want to talk about what comes out of it. What are the things that are coming from out of your heart? Not going into your body, but out of your heart. In order to maintain true worship, we need these two things. We need our heart in the right place. And we've got to get our authority from the right place. The Word of God.